From Wacko Chaco Studio, I am Ashwin Chaco, and this is The Fruitful Life, a show about the business of creativity and the stories behind the creators that have made their dreams a reality. Hey folks, welcome to The Fruitful Life, the brilliant Murugaya. Hi, Murugaya. Hi, how's it going? Nice to be here. Good, good. So glad you could take the time to chat with me today. So uh, for our audience that might not know you, can you introduce yourself? Tell us who you are and what you do. Sure. I'm an artist um, who creates kind of surreal imagery, um, colorful, bright, colorful art inspired by the kind of Western upbringing that I've had in my life and my Sri Lankan heritage that is another part of my life. And I make kind of, yeah. And let me see if I can find my bio because it's always the best thing to (laughs) refer back to um, in terms of what I do to give you like a tagline. Ah, yes, this is the one I made up for myself. A multi and interdimensional artist in London exploring identity and awe and everything in between. It's oh, basically nice. my catch-all term for basically saying I kind of want to do whatever I want to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But also niched at the same time. <laughs> no, I don't know no. why people want to put you in boxes, right? Yeah, they always want to yeah. kind of make sure that you're doing this specific thing that you're doing. So I have to have that on my bio, but I'm just an artist. Right. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, and I'm looking forward to digging into your story. But before we do... The first question I like to ask all my guests, and it's sort of my icebreaker, it's if you could be a fruit, what fruit would it be and why? (laughs) That is a interesting question. (laughs) I've never had that question before. Um, I would say I would pick my favorite fruit, which is um, a bunch of grapes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> There's a lot more of it would be a lot more of me to consume. Right. Um uh I can be taken to many different types of events. <laughs> right? <Yes. laughs> um I take my grapes to the cinema as my cinema snack. Um <laughs> My favorite fruit is actually mango, but grapes is a close second and yeah. What about you? This is a very interesting question. What have you had before? <laughs> uh, what fruits? Yeah, there's yeah. lots of different fruits. Uh, raspberries, uh, mangoes, pineapples, tomatoes. <laughs> what's yours? What, Mine, what's your favorite? I suppose it would be an apple. Like for representing me, I think an apple. But my favorite fruit to eat is a mango. It's an apple. Oh, fruit, yeah. So we share a similar favorite fruit to eat, which is good. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, okay, a representation. Yeah, a bunch of grapes. I'm all yeah. over the place. I'm a bit chaotic. <laughs> <laughs> very cool. Very cool. So let's let's dig into your your chaos. Let's uh, figure out who you are. So going back in time, when you were a kid, were you always creative? Were you always um, pursuing this line um was the idea of being an artist something that was instilled early or is this something you discovered later in life um i think 
Not from the very early, early stages of my life. Um, I'm trying to get some dates here. When did the movie Terminator 2 come out? Because <laughs> uh, that's when the creativity really hit. 91. Right. 1991. So around that time, in the early 90s, Disney was in the kind of height of Aladdin and The Lion mm. King. Star Wars was getting re-released, I believe. Yeah. yeah. The Terminator 2 film came out and... That's when it's movies, really. It's movies that really kind of like spark this creativity. I used to watch movies with my older brother and um, he would introduce me to films that were way too old for me. And um, <laughs> as and, good um, big brothers do. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. And um, I was watching Disney movies that at that time, Disney was going through a renaissance, right? Yeah. That kind of 90s. Um, uh, yeah, I wish they would be going through that now, to be honest, a new way of doing things, but they're not. Um, and that's when the creativity sparked. I was I would kind of go up to my bedroom and redraw the Terminator 2 endoskeleton because it was like mm. incredibly kind of impactful and movies like Aladdin and things like that. So around the early 90s was when I was drawing for fun. And then... I didn't really pick it back up again until I was like 15, 16. Um, I started taking art lessons at school and I started showing a kind of like a skill set for it. You know, my my right. my teachers were like, oh, you should pursue this as a career. You know, this would be good for you. Um, and that's when I spent, when I got to like um, 18, 19, any free time I had at school, I'd be in the art room, you know while everyone else was socializing and being a human being. <laughs> <laughs> I would be like on my own in the art room, like doing drawings, you know, and um, uh, yeah, ever since then, I've kind of like wanted to be an artist. And um, so that's, yeah, that's the answer to your question, I think. Well, like, because you come from Asian heritage, you know, Sri Lankan uh, background, was mm -hmm. there any pushback to your you know, love of the arts, uh, because you can have two extremes. There are some parents that are quite encouraging uh, and quite open. And then the others where they're like, sorry, you got to be a doctor, an engineer, or one of those, you know, highly <laughs> prolific jobs that guarantees yeah. <laughs> a life, uh, the lifestyle. I unfortunately had the latter. My parents wanted me to be a doctor and I did not show any uh, skill set for that. And yeah. then they said I should be a pharmacist and I didn't show any skill set for that. <laughs> and then they tried every other uh, medical uh, uh, job, basically, job right. in the medical field. Um, before I was like, I want to be an artist. And they were like, uh, we don't, you know, we kind of really want you to do something that pays a regular salary that kind of like encourages you to go to work nine to five. Right. And I didn't, I can, nowadays I kind of, I'm starting to understand why, because yeah. I'm such a workaholic now. I don't really have a nine to five. I have a 24 hours a day, basically just yeah, working yeah. whatever I can. And having that nine to five is, is like probably a healthier thing, you know? But we we agreed on doing something that like compromised between the two, and that was architecture. So right. I then studied that. I went to I went to London to study architecture for seven years, and 
um yeah then i quit and became an artist <laughs> right i suppose there are elements of your architectural training that do turn up in your artwork you know the line work is can be quite sharp and clear and you know very visible i'm guessing those elements have reflected or the style has embedded itself into parts of your art yeah 100 i i didn't really uh when i was doing my architecture course at university all of my buildings were very wacky and weird anyway (laughs) (laughs) you know i would design buildings with giant tubes coming out of them and stuff like very unbuildable things and my teachers encouraged that so that was good but by the end of the course the teachers were like hey maybe you should do graphic design or Mm. you know illustration because your work is leaning towards those industries and the way i was presenting my projects the way i was designing my buildings was very well thought out in this kind of creative way but the 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 rules around structure and using building materials and the architecture you know the, the 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 other half of architecture which is understanding your designs through a constructional point of view sure. i was not showing the best skill set in and sure. my teachers were like you know maybe you should do this instead and that was in 2012 and then i kind of quit and became an artist and only after a few years did I realize that all of that architecture training had embedded itself in my fine artwork and illustration work through, like you say, the use of constructional lines of heavy compositional elements and kind of designing a piece around composition first before anything else. Um, So yeah, the architecture training has had a massive impact on the way I make work today. And for the better, I think it kind of like it, it separates me from other artists in that way. It is part of my style, this architectural influence. And, um, you know, like, so you, you said you quit after obviously doing that course. What, how did you go about finding work for yourself? Was that an easy process? Was that a struggle? Um, what did that look like for you? Well, quitting was not an easy process at all because it was easy and, and not easy at the same time. I started to lose all of my hair from stress. Oh my and gosh. as you can see, I um, am very proud of my hair. Uh, <laughs> and when that started to fall out from stress, I was like, it definitely aware that I was in a, a very bad situation, you know? Right. Um, I, uh, I had done seven years of training and it is a, very tough course you know an architecture course so it was on top of that and then yeah my hair started to fall out during my first job and um I asked my parents as I look I gotta go I gotta get out of this and they were they encouraged me to leave at that point they were like you should do it luckily I had spent some time saving enough money during um my first job as an architect that had kind of given me a foundation of um, finances that I could then kind of start a fine art and illustration career uh, using those finances to kind of fund me um, into the next couple of years, basically. So I'd saved when transitioning to doing a different course, it's, you know, I had saved um, some money to kind of help me out, basically. Right. 
yeah so it did it was it was financially it was a little bit easier to do um creatively it was very difficult because i was starting an entirely new career and i had nowhere no idea where to start what to do um yeah so good and bad as as life is <laughs> and so did you take a course or you just started like looking for clients and reaching out and saying hey here's what i do sort of thing uh a bit of both i started making work that was interesting me at the time which at that time was work that was inspired by movies um and coming up with personal projects interesting projects that I had that i hadn't seen before uh things like one of my first project personal projects i did was quentin tarantino's screenplays as penguin book covers right and um like penguin classics because i consider his screenplays to be novels in their own right and kind yeah, of yeah. you know worthy of being presented in the, in a penguin classic form and if you look for that online now there's like so many versions of that by many different artists and um, much better than what i did in 2012 but mine is probably still on there somewhere on the internet and that project kind of got me in shortlist magazine i later a few years later i was in the offices of penguin having an interview and they said that they had that image on their office walls for a long time kind of like <laughs> talking about it and stuff so i uh, you know things like that projects like that was were the ones that kind of got my name out there a little bit and and allowed me to build more personal work and build more it was always work that was uh it was never personal actually it was always kind of like spec projects like right. film posters yeah, and yeah. book covers um and it got me a lot of clients in similar industries basically and it got me my first agent as well um yeah yeah I was also cold cold emailing lots of clients. Um something I still do to this day, not necessarily cold emailing, but building relationships with clients and checking in every now and again to see if they have any projects that might kind of, you know, be suitable for my work now. So those lessons of continuously making work for myself and speaking to clients and being well versed in who is commissioning work at that time have paid off because I still do those things today right. even though I have representation even though I have like a following now um I still do those things today because it it really does help yeah i just you... go I, I just go about it a different way now <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah of course of course can you like yeah talk a little bit more about personal projects and the importance of that building a presence because i think a lot of young artists don't realize this and this is the same for me like i got a lot of the jobs that i did because i did a personal project that i was just fascinated by so like for instance in 2018 there was the whole hand lettering movement was having a resurgence um and so i was seeing it everywhere and i was like that's cool i wonder if i could do that and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I want to get hired to do that. But I had nothing in my portfolio to show that I had had lettering. And so I did like a 30-day Instagram project where I just posted, um, you know, typographic pieces. And then at the end of that, that turned into my book, Keep At It, because I found a connection, a thread line through it all. And that mm -hmm. 
book then became easy to present to art directors and say, look, look what I can do. And then I got hired to do typography work. So I'm curious, um, what was your process thinking around personal projects? What advice would you give? What rules would you set for yourself? Well, the 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 personal projects I was doing in a few years ago, 10 years ago, uh, were things that interested me, yeah. like film posters. Um, really, obviously, I, as I spoke about earlier, my initial inspiration for becoming an artist was through film. So I figured the best thing to do would be to make film posters, that alternative film posters that um, inspired me. And during that time, Mondo and the alternative film poster movement was was thriving and like it started in like 2005, 2006. So it was a few years old at that point and pretty underground in the kind of mainstream illustration and design media. But like um, to the people that knew and to the fan base, they were really into this stuff. So I was like, my goal was like, if I can make alternative film posters, I could get the attention of, you know, film studios of companies like Mondo who commission alternative film art. Um, and that was only the one, really. It was only that one. And then uh, as I was kind of moving around and seeing the different illustration styles, I was like, oh, maybe I could do editorial illustration maybe i could figure out a style a kind of like you know an illustration style that would suit editorial clients or book cover clients and um that was a similar time period i was doing that as well um so the personal projects at that time were still spec work driven yeah of course but in terms of the personal work i make now i have this established style that I made for myself um, during COVID. And my personal projects are more like fine art paintings now. They're not, they're not speculatively driven towards a client or a project. They're much yeah. more about coming up with ideas and themes that um, I find the, the way a fine artist would, like through personal experience, through and what I found with that type of personal work is that because the style is what it is, it attracts clients, you know, whichever way. But it means that I can be way more creative and way more free in how I present those ideas. I'm not adhering to, oh, I should do a crowd scene because crowd scenes sell for particular yeah. editorial clients yeah. or, or, you know, commercial clients. It's more, let me just do this personal piece around a parade that or a masquerade party where I can just put everything and anything into it as wild as I can think of. And more often than not, a, a commercial client will come and see that piece and say, this is amazing. We love seeing this. Could you adapt this? You know, could you create a new piece, but with this inspired, with this as inspiration for our brand? Yeah. So it means that the starting off point of a commercial collaboration is one of pure creative freedom that I started with my personal project. So yeah, in terms of advice for personal projects, I the advice I give to younger illustrators is to 
think about your personal experience, what interests you stylistically, and then think about the things that inter- interest you thematically, um, personal feelings, kind of issues with mental health or mm. what your personal experience, and then combine those two things, the stylistic inspiration and the thematic inspiration and meld them all together with your uh, you know with other inspirations that and things that come into your life and come up with these ideas um so yeah personal work is a very difficult one to advise on especially your example of like looking at the lettering movement and wanting to to be involved in that um i think if there are things like that that come up and it does lean towards a more speculative, like I'm going to put myself into this trend, then I still believe that what you make out of it should be incredibly personal. You oh, know? yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, what, whatever the case may be, I think the more authentic you are um, coming from, the more authentic place you're coming from, the better work comes in. I think, I think there, there is a split in the approach across where we are in our career as well to personal projects so when when we talk about speculative work like the type project would have been earlier in my career your poster project would have been earlier in in your career and at that stage we're trying to figure like what works for us what are the things we're interested in it still starts from a, a spark of curiosity and looking for um something that's within the market or isn't quite in the market and and we can bring to the table with ourselves. And then later as our career develops, I think we start creating projects that are more meaningful to ourselves and building built around our own personal brand or our personal, yeah, our personal brand is probably the easiest way of saying it, mm-hmm. our, our personal message, the things we're interested in. And so now in our careers, the the brands are coming to us for our outlook rather than Mm -hmm. for our style or like, yes, you know, for our ability. So we're less hands, more ideas, but initially in our careers, we're more hands. And though we're ideas, we're not yet known for that. And so there's a, there's a building process, I think. Yeah, it's true. There is something different about the way I approached it early on in my career to versus now. And it's funny because film posters have been a constant throughout the work I make. And my early approach to film posters was, oh, this style is doing really well. I'm going to make something in this style. Or um, I see a lot of people playing with these things, so I'm just going to do these things more after i took a break during covid and kind of re-established my work and redesigned my work under this newly developed style i then started making film posters in that style the style that i developed during that time and it's far more unique than other things that are around at the time which means i don't get as much mainstream work but then when someone comes to me for a film poster project they want me for this very surreal psychedelic thing that I do. Yeah. And it means that I'm the only one who's doing it at that time. So it's, it's, it's funny, you know, when you talk about kind of developing styles and doing speculative work, I still think before all of that happens, 
a aesthetic and thematic style needs to be established around one's work before yeah. they can apply themselves to other people's projects, you know, film posters, book covers. I just think it pays off way better if you have developed this very unique way of drawing or this unique way of presenting images um, before you then apply it to somebody else's work or somebody else's project. Um, yeah. I always think of it in the same way as filmmakers, like which filmmaker, do you, does, do you follow filmmakers at all? Or is it, are you just there to enjoy the movie? Um, from my point of view, I really enjoy certain filmmakers who have mm. a very unique way of telling a story and they don't really, it, it then becomes about that person's way of telling a story. Yeah. Most recently, um, Barbenheimer, you know, both those directors, Christopher Nolan and Greta Gerwig, have a way of telling a story. Yeah. The best thing about film is you can change the the aesthetics, yeah. but the way you tell a story, the direction, always is the same. There are repeat things that you can find in both in all Greta Gerwig's career and Christopher Nolan's career, yeah. because those are the thematic things that they repeat. Sometimes they repeat some aesthetic things, but what I love about Barbie is that it's very different aesthetically to Little Women, but the themes are very similar. So. Right. You know. Yeah, it's uh it's the same with um Guy Ritchie. Like Guy Ritchie, the second, like the first 10 minutes, you'll know it's a Guy Ritchie movie just from how <laughs> he cuts the edits, you know, the the fast pace, and then like you go into the storyline, sometimes it's back forward, you know. But yeah. Ex I, except for Aladdin, the live action Aladdin remake, where he let the client maybe yeah. the client's um uh, bottom line, maybe that took over a little bit, and he was like, "Okay, I'll just do it." And this is this a similar thing in illustration and design. When it, when you get too, if you don't establish your style, your aesthetic, your thematics beforehand, it's very easy to let the clients and the um, nature of the project take over how you would approach it. Yeah. It's a very difficult line to thread. That's what I'm dealing with at the moment. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, so it, it can be very difficult sometimes. For sure, for sure. Uh, yeah, while we're speaking about that, let's dive into that a little more. Like, uh, what is it like dealing with clients? What is your client relationship? What about expectations? How do you go about prepping a client for the expectations you have? versus the expectations they might have and making sure that you're both on the same page so that you have the most succinct and enjoyable process. And has that shifted from earlier on your career to, to now? What are some of the lessons you learned along the way? Yeah, uh, it's definitely shifted in terms of how I would approach the client relationship early on in my career i was just a very appreciative to have a job so it would be like sure i can redesign this and put a hundred more people in even though that's not what i normally do or i can i can make it a completely different color palette because you know it suits your brand colors and all of this stuff um whereas nowadays before the project has even started i've said most of the time, a client nowadays has seen what the work I do, so they they have a rough idea of the kind of work they're going to get. But I may want to try something 
new that they haven't seen before because this opportunity has given me the kind of platform to do so. So I'm I have to kind of let them know, like, hey, there's an initial line work stage, there's room to discuss and change things. Um, but after a certain point, you've just got to let me get on with the with the work. And there's gonna be a small element of discovery when in the coloring of the project or the kind of like finishing of the project that may not be the final sketch that I sent you early on. It may be slight variation and you should allow for that stuff to happen. Clients should allow for that stuff to happen. It's the same way I always compare to filmmaking because in filmmaking, you have a script at the beginning and you get, you start shooting that script and things start to change. And, you know, you can't treat the script as Bible because sometimes things might happen with the actors on set where they create something slightly new or you don't expect expect something that you pre-planned in the script phase that you then want to put in the film. So that film is quite different to the initial, you know, or a little bit different to the initial concepts that you created at the beginning. So I guess the most recent project would be uh, Green Man. Green Man Festival were looking for a different aesthetic to what they had had before. And that's always a scary thing in an email when I we're looking for something different. And I'm like, are you sure? (laughs) (laughs) Are you 100% sure? Because I will give you something very different to what you've had before. And the thing that kept it all in check was that they were like, yes, we want something different, but please can you use our color palette? That way you can, the illustrations can be quite different, but because we're adhering to a color palette that we've adhered to before, it'll be a slow transition for customers of Green Man to be like, oh, this is kind of different to what we've seen before, but it's also something new. And that was the best way to kind of negotiate that project. It's like, I will then, I have to then say, okay, I'm letting go of the colors that I normally use, these big, bright, bold colors, but I'm still getting to do something more interesting and new for this client. So Mm. I have to let some things go, but maintain some things that the client has to let some things go and maintain something. So it's, it's a, and if you don't, if you're not healthy compromise, like all relationships should be. (laughs) And if you, if you don't, say that stuff up front at the yeah. beginning of a project you you um it causes problems later so i'm doing a magazine cover right now for a client that i am not allowed to say but it came up with some the, the initial brief came with some rules and my first sketch broke those rules immediately i was like i'm going to break these rules because i think it should be done differently yeah then I get the email back saying, not negatively at all, just I didn't tell them I was breaking these rules. I just submitted the sketch. And the email came back and it came back with all of the critical comments were about the rules that I'd broken. Yeah. And in my head, I haven't responded yet. But in my head, I was thinking, are these rules, are these comments worth continuing a, a, a conversation or should I adhere to them and play around in other ways you know yeah. like try and put myself into the drawing in other ways and i thought to myself it's better to compromise in this situation the circumstances around which will be revealed later but um later in the year when you see the, the magazine cover but it wasn't worth me arguing any further or to say arguing discussing any further with yeah. the client 
I'd rather just adhere to their rules and, you know, um, I'm okay with that. So every project has these things and the bigger the client, the sometimes the more difficult those conversations have to happen. Yeah, yeah. And I think there is also magic in the improvisation, you know, like when we create a rough sketch, the color and how it affects the line work can make such a drastic change to the artwork and ensuring that you've made plain to the client that that possibility or there's some level of expectation there of that potentially happening then really ensures that it's quite a smooth transition yeah i would say so sometimes it's very different though i mean i i recently did a project for refugee week uh and counterpoints arts and they hired me because I make bright, bold, fun, colorful stuff. And that was their only brief. It was like, just, we got to make sure that it's bright, positive, and bold. Yeah. And the way the project was designed was that it was designed with a group of young asylum seekers. So it wasn't sure. just me reading the brief and then coming up with ideas. It was me doing a workshop with young asylum seekers and coming up with ideas and themes and even drawings. I was like, let's draw some stuff out. Let's actually yeah, illustrate yeah. some things. And it meant that the project, you know, didn't become mine anymore. It became everyone's project. Sure. And my way of making it or making it cohesive was to take everything that we gathered and then turn it into one of my drawings. Sure. Um, so, yeah, it was, it's, it can always, it's, you have to be open to new ways of doing things, I think, and new ways of collaboration. Um, I've got a sculpture coming out in September and it was, it's highly collaborative. There's so many different people involved. And I, I'm just like, I did my initial sketch and then I essentially like passed it on to so many different people to kind of redevelop. And when it came right. to the materiality, it then developed even further. And if you're not open to those changes, then it can cause some trouble. <laughs> yeah. 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 So like what I'm hearing is, be open and flexible with your style, even though it's an established style um, within reason so that you're not so compromised that it's not recognizable, but at the same time, not so rigid that you can't flex with the work to ensure that the best outcome is retrieved. I agree. I think it really comes from one word of world building. Yeah. Essentially, if you're and and you're building a world, you're not building a set of brand guidelines. You're building a, an entire planet of uh, what your style is, right? Yeah. And in a planet, there are multitudes of people living on a planet. There are multitudes of languages and, and styles and all sorts of things. And if you're building this entire planet of stuff, there is room to navigate between different areas of that planet. Say like. Maybe this part of the planet is bright and colorful. Maybe this part of the planet is sits under someone else's brand guidelines, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and a career is a, it's a lifelong career. You should mm. be allowing yourself to change your style uh, yes. ever so slightly if you wish to, you know? Some of my favorite artists, if you look at their entire careers, you see a massive transition of style and kind of like room to play and stuff. So, um it's such a difficult one because at the very beginning of your career, you're like, it has to be this and this yeah, only. Yeah. And then you start to kind of open up a little bit. I recently spoke to like 
a really well-known illustrator and she was like, I'm happy to follow the brand guidelines. If the colors, if they want these colors, they've got these colors. I have set myself a, a style and I can always present my personal work in that style. And these client projects probably benefit from being slightly different because then they can always be considered as client projects. They're not part of the world building that you've created yourself, you know? Sure. So, yeah. It's a, yeah. It's a fun one. It's a fun I one. I think, like, it's easy to forget that, you know, like, as we grow, our aesthetic and our thoughts are going to shift and change, you know? And mm-hmm. style is the bridge between who you who we are and what, what we have to say or visually communicate. And I think that's something that we shouldn't forget, that as we grow, our style will change and flex with us because that's how it'll stay authentic to us and exactly. um, our interpretation of the world. But, you know, you said... In 2020, that's when you were able to consolidate sort of your ideas, your style, um, and it's been only a couple of years, and obviously that has allowed you to grow your following and the rest, very similar to me <laughs> in my own pod, 2020, that time, that pause moment allowed for that, but now that you're suddenly in the limelight or you've got a huge following, how has that affected you from an imposter syndrome standpoint? Do you ever feel that way? Uh, like walking onto stage, maybe I shouldn't be here. <laughs> sort of vibe. Uh, what, what's been your experience? How do you deal with that? How do I deal with imposter syndrome? Um, or do you even have it? Not everybody I'd... does. Well, this is the thing. The other thing about this is why I go back to that world building. Once, if you build this world for yourself, you're living in it. You're the one presenting it. You're the expert in it, which means there's very little lack of confidence that comes with that. It's kind of like, well, no, of course, these characters shouldn't have heads. They should have squiggly things because that's what, you know, it's how I've like developed them, you know. Um, In terms of talking, on stage that's something that's still quite nerve-wracking i'm a bit of a chaotic mess when i'm presenting on stage and uh i have to have like a a presentation that's somewhat um autobiographical and kind of like chronological because then that helps me like get back on track to what i was talking about yeah so in terms of imposter syndrome i think there are times now where a recent project has come in where i've had to draw a lot of characters, but human characters. And a lot of the work I've done so far has never really, the characters are very alien. They're, they're not, they've got human anatomy, arms and legs, but their heads are often different. Their heads are often in this floral and fauna world. Um, so instead of taking that opportunity and seeing it as a, a worrying thing, it's now my opportunity to establish the way I draw human characters, you know, sure. um, and just and and do it on the job, basically, because it's the only way you learn. Um, you take the opportunity and you make sure it's the best thing you it can be, but use it as an opportunity to develop something new about the way you work. Um, so I'm having a little imposter syndrome about that, but also mm-hmm. seeing it as an opportunity to just come up with some actual cool, you know, unique ways of drawing humans. Yeah, yeah. 
Very cool. And when you look back at failure, you know, throughout the years, how has that, how has your ability to deal with that affected your career? Um, has that shifted? What's your your relationship with failure like? <laughs> My current relationship with failure is the thing that is least developed in my entire life. <laughs> I still deal with it in a very emotional, in a very, sometimes very upsetting way. And it can be really hard on my mental health, right. especially when I've I've gone for a specific job or I've like had a specific client in mind that I've really wanted to work with. And then it hasn't happened. It hasn't worked out. Um, it can affect me in a in a pretty bad way. But in the past, the reason I've gotten to this style now and this progression now is because I failed many times in different right. art styles, in different stages of my career. And I, I've not been able to like pursue the style that I thought was mine and authentic to me, but it clearly wasn't. And I'd had to just stop it and do another one mm. until it feels more natural to me. So in the long run, I have a very healthy relationship to failure because I've actually fallen down and kept getting back up again and starting something new. But in the short term, I have a very difficult relationship with failure because you I'm a human being, you know, you, yeah. you get rejected by something and you're like, oh, okay, that sucks. So I'm now trying to have a slightly better relationship with it in the short term. Like, yeah, if if you don't get a particular job actually why even have that in your mindset why even have oh i need to work with this client or i need to work with that client like it doesn't matter like the actual best job that that one can do is where the client is friendly fun and the project develops into something you've never expected before so like another example is the one from earlier the refugee week project started mm -hmm. out as initial campaign artwork, which would have been something that was presented on social media and printed out for members of the organization for people to kind of share the messaging. That campaign poster then got turned into a window installation with Choose Love for the South Bank, uh, the Royal Festival Hall, something that wasn't part of the initial plan. Yeah. At the end of that, pro that part of the project, the clients were like, hey, we've got this opportunity to turn this into an animation and put it either side of the pyramid stage at Glastonbury. Hmm. Something I never would have expected, you know, yeah. and it just keeps snowballing and snowballing. And I was like, this is the best project I've ever done. I've worked <laughs> with amazing people. I didn't come up with the ideas myself. It snowballed into new things and new ways of presenting. And I met loads of fun people along the way. So yeah. I had never had that client on my list on my quote-unquote list so now i'm trying not to have a list mm. um sometimes things work out though i've had one client on my list for over 10 years and they got in touch with me last week <laughs> nice Amazing. so you know sometimes just having it in the back of your mind and being a bit more chilled out about it um you know is a better way to go um yeah what about yourself? How do you deal with that stuff? I know um, <laughs> we have a similar, I'd love to get your insight on that stuff because uh, I've been dealing with it the last couple of years and trying to have a relationship with what you want versus what comes to you. And yeah. it's 
you know, how do you deal with that stuff? I see it as a stepping stone, you know, each opportunity or like each failure is then an opportunity to grow within that area. And so, okay, what wasn't working? I I, I tend to be quite analytic, analytical in my approach to my failure and say, why wasn't it working? What like, obviously initial gut reaction is like, <laughs> what why you know and so i i do spew a little and then the analytical brain kicks in and i'm like okay what wasn't working how can i do this better next time mm-hmm. what were they actually trying to say perhaps it's just crossed wires and i'm not communicating well enough and like that's been one of the big like foundational growth things for me is communicate, learning to be a better communicator because Mm -hmm. that really affects your ability to express what your intention was, understand the client's intention, and then get that healthy compromise like we were talking about. Um, And so when it comes to failure now, it's generally either bad communication, which can be rectified, uh, or a lack of, um, you know, establishing expectation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that that has become now more and more prevalent in my practice is where before we do any work, I establish, here's the process, here's what we're going to be doing, here's what you can expect. Uh, and it's it's the same from them. And more often than not, we, like, Usually when you go to a client thing, a lot of the times you're just listening to the client's expectation and not bringing your own. And so that has been a really pivotal learning for me when it comes Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. dealing with clients, dealing with failure, dealing with communication. Yeah, okay. I'm going to take that on board. I mean, yeah. It's, it's, it's the other thing that affects it is also like so many people will say when there's a you know when a project comes out that I've done for example so many people will be like that must have been so much fun you must be so happy to have done that thing and my brain goes into like no I mean the the next thing's around the corner I'm you know this is not this particular aspect of this project didn't go very well and that bit doesn't look good yeah. and, and I wish I could be way more like in the moment and celebratory yeah. of the thing and just try and enjoy it because that's what life's about really it's yeah. not it's not about you know moving on to the next thing and the next thing it's about enjoying the things that you do um so yeah that i think that has a lot to do with um the response to kind of failure and and the other things we were talking about like just being a bit more present um yeah yeah like 100% because i think um we often forget to celebrate those little moments in life and, and the little achievements and so part of that has been one of the things i've been trying to do is at the end of the year um look back at everything i've achieved because in the moment it can seem like it's been daunting or it's been not what you expected but then when you actually look back at the whole year you're like oh actually i achieved more than i thought but in that 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 moment it felt like you didn't progress that far 
Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I definitely have uh the review yeah the 20 the 2023 in review is going to be a a big one for me this year there's there's been many firsts on uh on this particular year so i'm i'm excited to kind of look back at the end of the year and see and maybe have a moment of reflection but yeah. right now i'm in the in the mix yeah, of everything in the mix, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so what is one piece of advice you give a young creator today Oh gosh, it's such a difficult one because there's so many things you can implant on somebody of like, here's how to do this better, or here's here's another thing you can do to make your work life balance easier. Um take 20% of every paycheck you get and put it in a tax savings account <laughs> so that you can um pay your taxes at the end of the year. Yes. <laughs> yeah that's one that's one but on a creative one i would say find the aesthetical influences uh on your life the things that you love aesthetically the movies you love the books you love the the illustrations of other people's work the the whatever anything the patterns in nature that and anything aesthetical that you love and then put it in a pot find the thematic things that you're interested in telling your stories about yeah, for issues with mental health climate change your personal experience grab all of those things and put it in a pot and then stir the pot and then start coming up with ideas nice. and I, I because all of those things are unique to you the individual you will start coming up with unique things as well very cool great advice um and the last question i like to end all my podcasts on is um what does the word fruitful mean to you <laughs> the word fruitful means um well if you're having a fruitful relationship right in in the context of what we do for a living uh is that everything is going smoothly and everyone's nice to one another so um to quote anthony burrell um if you work hard and be nice to each other you'll have a fruitful relationship <laughs> nice love that love that <laughs> hey thank you all for listening to this episode of the fruitful life i hope you walk away with some nuggets of wisdom and if you did please do me a favor and leave me a rating and a comment to let me know what you think of the show also, consider telling a friend who might like it. As always, be true, be you, stay fruitful.